This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Why would we have a fear of success? Isn't success not something we all want? Well, yes, but turns out you only want it consciously. Subconsciously, you want something else, to maintain identity and keep yourself alive. In fact, this need to preserve your identity is so strong that your subconscious has no problem sabotaging you to meet that need. The subconscious is often more primitive than your conscious brain. It is not sophisticated enough to understand exceptions. It forms general rules and then protects them dearly, justifying it by thinking if it kept you alive this long, then they must be treated with the utmost important. With hypnotherapy, you can get answers from the subconscious and understand the unconscious influences and childhood experiences specific to you and your fear of success. Once we bring them to the surface, we can debunk them and reverse the programming. It is one of the best gifts we can give ourselves to free us from these distorted fears. Valeria Telles interviews Saman Nasir, a healer, meditation coach, certified hypnotherapist, a member of the American Hypnosis Association, instructor at the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, and speaker. Saman Nasir is also an instructor at the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, which offers a 720-hour clinical hypnotherapy program accredited by ACCET and represents the most extensive hypnotherapy training. Saman Nasir is also an instructor at the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, which offers a 720-hour clinical hypnotherapy program accredited by ACCET and represents the most extensive hypnotherapy training available anywhere today. She has been helping people make positive changes in their lives for over 10 years. Saman works with a network of psychologists, MFTs, and psychiatrists to provide the most comprehensive care for her clients. Saman is a kind and gentle practitioner and cares for all her clients as if they were her own family. Saman Nasir is a hypnotherapist and honors graduate from the Hypnosis Motivation Institute. When she graduated, she was invited to give a talk on how hypnosis deepens the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy. As she was giving a talk on this topic, the dean of HMI College was so impressed that he offered her a career as an instructor, which she gladly accepted. Today, she helps other hypnotherapy students and up-and-coming hypnotherapists perfect their craft as an instructor in various hypnotherapy classes and workshops. Meet Sammy at DontWaitToLive.com. Here is the interview with Saman Nasir.
in your own words, who is Salman Nasir today? Hi, Valerie. Salman Nasir is someone that's dedicated to finding the root cause of pain and trying to alleviate as much suffering as possible without shifting too much of who someone fundamentally is. I'm not sure if I asked you this question before, but you just inspired me to ask you a question about pain and suffering. I have heard that they are different aspects of being, of life, states of mind or body. So do you see a difference? And also the courage to suffer. How do you interpret that? Well, uh, such an excellent and very deep question. So uh, yes, definitely there is a big difference between the two, even though they get very confused for each other, right? People use the word suffering and pain interchangeably. Pain is a helpful mechanism of the body that's supposed to tell us to get away from a source of something that could destroy us or, or cause us harm. For example, fire or, um, you know, as far as emotions go, maybe it's somebody that's that's toxic or abusive. So pain is a signal that, hey, this is not okay. Your body's in danger. Please get yourself to safety. Suffering would be caused by an attachment to that pain or an attachment to extreme pleasure, an attachment to anything that's different than what is here now, that is different than the present moment. So suffering is nothing more than a demand that we put on ourselves and on the present moment that, no, it's not okay for you to be the way that you are. You need to be different. But the truth is, in accepting what is here now, we're not giving up and we're not saying that, you know, things will never change or there's going to be nothing any different. But it's just really coming to where we are now, meeting ourselves, meeting the present moment where, where it is now. And that's what causes the end of suffering. The courage to suffer. What is the meaning of that to you? What does it mean to you? So um, I feel like that was just uh, uh, another way of restating the first question because the two are so intricately linked. The courage to suffer is nothing more than saying, okay, one of the things that the present moment has now brought to me is my resistance to my pain. So can I now take a step back and make room for my resistance to the pain, to my suffering of the pain? So eventually we want to start removing these layers because what we find is that there, when there is a painful moment, something we do not accept, we create resistance. But then we create resistance to that resistance. So we create more suffering by saying, great, you know, now I'm suffering. So in the spiritual world, we'll see that this often becomes a trap where in order to be rid of the ego really fast, we use spirituality to create more suffering by saying, oh, I need to accept the present moment as it is. I don't want my ego. I only want my higher self. So I'm just going to create the suffering around not being able to be spiritual enough. And we put this demand on ourselves. And we have to start shedding those layers and start saying, okay, let's meet myself where I am now. I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I'm completely 100% in the clutches of my ego. That's okay. I can take a step back and notice that. And I can make room for that. And I can accept that. So that would be the courage to suffer, to be able to step back and allow the natural process that's happening to continue happening, to be able to watch and witness the present moment. Yes, rather than trying to fix it. So in speaking of fear, so my other warm-up question for you now is about becoming fearless. Are we designed to become fearless? 
So we want um, some fear to be there, right? Because it's a very healthy, very natural response to something dangerous in our environment. Um, What has happened now is that we're safer in a lot of different ways than we used to be. So when we were nomads or cavemen or our ancestors had to worry about a lot more things, attacks from the opposite tribe, animal attacks, in a lot of ways, those dangers aren't there. But there are other dangers that, you know, we now face, which is, um, you know, losing our jobs or not being good enough or our spouse leaving us or our parents passing away, things like that. So some fear is good as long as we can hear its message. We don't want to eliminate fear because then we're sort of asking for this very almost psychopathic existence where we're like, I'm not afraid of anything. Nothing disturbs me. I just go through life and I'm happy all the time because we're not meant to live that way. We're not meant to be completely free of every negative emotion and only be able to experience positive emotion. It doesn't work like that. So the healthy mechanism of fear is to say, hey, um, you know, Valerie, perhaps you didn't lock your door. And if you don't lock your door, somebody could come in because there has been somebody else's home that got broken into recently in your neighborhood. That's a good good thing for you to have that fear because that will cause you to generate enough motivation, enough energy in your mm-hmm. body to wake up no matter how deeply asleep you were and, and wake up and go lock your door. Now, as long as you're completing the message of the, that the fear is trying to convey to you, there's no issue. But right. the issue becomes when people take fear and they they try to repress it instead of listening to the underlying message. They, they're like, well, I don't want to get up <laughs> right now. I'm very tired. So they just lay there kind of, you know, just, just stewing in the fear. And then they blame the fear. But the issue was the fear wasn't heard. And it was trying to send a powerful, important message to try to protect you. Mm, so so in, in a sense, we don't want to be completely fearless, do we? We want that very human, very natural side of us to always remain there as our protector. We just don't want to have it turn into some sort of addiction where we just re-experience the fear just for the the jittery energy that it provides, the, the fear that it provides. We can become addicted to that and then crave that. Um, so we want to kind of use the fear for what it's really trying to tell us. What is there beyond feelings, Sammy, from your perspective and experience in this life? Um, so feelings are our biological response. So we have a biology and that does include feelings, that includes our biological needs, that includes, you know, fear, pain, um, a little bit of suffering. But then we are, we are above and beyond our biology as well. So when our biology is taken care of, when it, it's not triggered all the time, we can start to, with self-care, create enough safety in the body that we're able to really tap into a place beyond feeling, a place of Mm. being a witness, a place of noticing, a place of curiosity and a place of wonder, a place where we can realize that, yes, I do have this physical body and I do have these emotions and I tend to be very biased towards certain things because I do have an ego that's a fierce protector of me. But I am also someone that is connected to everything else that exists. Mm -hmm. And that is beautiful in of itself. And if we can get to a place where we can really start to connect with no boundaries, with everything that we're surrounded by, and that includes nature, that includes animals, that includes other human beings, um, that might even include the, the surface that you sit on now. 
just really kind of melting into that surface now, mm. not being protective of our bodies as a boundary. We can start to create this spaciousness, this emptiness. That's what we, that's the place that we want to get to eventually. We, we want to at least be able to experience that place because there's no stress, there's no fear in that place. Mm. And we can really start to distinguish between our biological self and our higher self. When you say wonder, I was wondering here when you said that. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> curiosity. Are they feelings, that the state of being? Yeah, those are feelings too, aren't they? Yes, I would say that, yes, in, in a large sense, that's true. Because they are things that we experience in the body. Certain chemicals are released. And then everything in our perception is going through the lens of our of our mind. But there are certain feelings like the ones you mentioned, wonder, curiosity, uh, appreciation and gratitude. I forgot mm, to mention, which is yeah, very important. Yeah. It's still a feeling, but it's very pure. It's not colored by our lens of how things should be. They're just very open. So they are feelings, but they're being experienced by a very different part of the mind. They're being experienced by the part of the brain where the third eye we would say is, which is just perception, the purity of perception without our biases, without our feelings of, oh, I want to manipulate this feeling now, or I want to hold on to this feeling, or how do I reproduce this feeling? This feels so good. That becomes an addiction. And that's colored with the lens of anxiety and, and it's fear-based. But these feelings we're talking about are very different. They're very pure. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that because that makes sense to me, right? So wonder, curiosity, appreciation, gratitude, they are feelings, but you call them pure in a sense of coming from a different space, which we could actually try to attach to them as well, right? We, it could become, I don't think it could become an addiction, but it could become an attachment. Yes. And I want to add to that. A question that I get a lot is how do I know? if I'm using that part of the brain or if the feeling is pure. And one of the things that does happen that we can look for is time distortion. So um, if time seems to really, really slow down or really, really speed up where you lose all sense of time, that's how you know that that part of our brain, the very critical analytical part of the brain is shut off and you're more just in your experience is that time distortion factor. And the second way would be a flow state which is you become the process. There's no separation between what, what you're doing and you. So perhaps you might notice that, Valerie, when you go to edit videos and you're like, wow, this is so beautiful. I'm going to add this here. And oh, I wonder how this would look if I add this music. When you're doing that, you've become the process. There's no separation between Valerie and what she's doing. That would be one of those feelings of wonder and curiosity that we talked about. Yeah, lovely. Uh, that's a, a- Beautiful way of saying that. My last warm-up question is, what is another word for life? What comes to mind? I would say the one that captures the essence of life is just being. Being with the process, being with what was given to us, what this present moment brought to us. That to me is life. So the topic that we are discussing today is... Why do we have a fear of success? So my first question to you is exactly that. Why do we fear success? And how is what we want consciously different from what we want subconsciously? 
So consciously, what we want is a result of more or less things that were taught to us. It's good to have money. It's good to not suffer. It's uh, good to have stability. Um, that car that you saw in a commercial, you want that. That house that you you saw your brother have or your best friend have, you want something like that or something better. That is formed by what we observe and what we see and what we know that we want. That's conscious. Subconscious is just based on identity, purely based on identity and what you had or what you were told you should have, uh, more or less as a kid. So if as a kid you saw that things came to you very easily, whatever you wanted, you were able to create it. If, uh, you know, you wanted something nice and you told your parents you wanted it and they said, fine, I'll make you a deal if you do this, if you get these kind of grades and you help out around the chores, I'll get you that video game. Then you will instill that sense that, yes, when I do hard work or when I really attempt something, I usually get rewarded. So the subconscious would create a belief system that hard work or work equals success. So you wouldn't necessarily have sabotage because your conscious mind and your subconscious would be aligned. But if subconsciously you have the life script of I always suffer, everybody else has the things that they want, but I don't get to have what I want or Parents told us things like, for instance, money doesn't grow on trees or do you know how hard it is to earn a dollar and, you know, you need to be careful because if you don't do all the right things, you're going to be broke. Even though at the time we feel like we're rejecting what our parents are saying and we're, we're, we're consciously saying, no, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be able to make money because I'm creative and I know what I'm doing. But subconsciously, a part of our brain is like, well, our parents are saying that. So let's just keep it just in case. So it creates like a separate belief system that we don't really uh, consciously become aware of. But subconsciously, our identity gets maintained based on what our parents were saying, because there's a part of our developmental brain that tells us our parents need to be right, because if they're not right, we're not going to survive. So everything they're saying is true. I'm just not going to allow you to feel it because it's painful to feel it. So I'll keep it separate. And then our life scripts get based on what they were saying. So that would what would create a subconscious understanding of how much success we're supposed to have. And as you can imagine, the two would be in conflict very often. So I wonder if the subconscious mind is at play now, for example. Would that be the case, um, Sammy, that this has happened? Whatever I'm doing now, it's my life is playing on those two stages at the same time. Yes, that would be the case because once those beliefs are formed, um, like you said, a statement or, or, or truth that we told ourselves, where we told ourselves it was a truth, we didn't do it consciously. It happened more on autopilot, but it never had a reasons to really change. It kind of cemented itself and anything that's happening in your life that disproves it, uh, doesn't get noticed by the subconscious. That's why it's very hard to change beliefs once they're formed because they're born out of trauma or they're born out of extreme necessity to protect your identity. So they don't just change all the time. Otherwise, Valerie, everybody would see a different version of you every single day. They would see a different version of me based on, based on what I read or what movies I watched. So what happens in that case is that the subconscious keeps those beliefs until we use something very strong like hypnosis or until we have such a strong opposite experience and it's a very emotional experience that rewires our brain. But for the most part, those beliefs stay there. So that programming would be there now still. 
from your perspective, we cannot really navigate this reality without the identity. We have to have one, right, Sammy? We are, you're not really, with hypnotherapy, you're not ending or getting rid of belief systems in a way you're replacing them. So the person has something else to operate from. Yes. So even if it's a neutralization of the present belief, it's still a new belief system. So I'm not supposed to have money. If we change that into that's not true or, you know, I am supposed to have money, then we are, we're replacing that with a different one. So even neutralizing a belief would be a replacement. What you mentioned earlier about not having an identity, that means we would be changing every day. <laughs> every day would be different. I mean, some people, they, they're not different every day, I guess, but they are open to anything that that happens, what is happening in life in this moment. Yes, and those people usually will have done some sort of deep spiritual work or they were just raised in a way that allowed them to stay very open and not be egocentric because ego wants to protect the identity from changing at all costs because it believes it's too dangerous. But if they were supported a lot as children or as adults, they made a conscious choice that every day they're going to live by this idea of staying open despite their fear, despite their ego response, then they would be exactly how you described it, which is open to new perspectives and not fear-based. So talk to me about the ways that we can recognize when the, the subconscious is doing the work of trying to protect us and, and sabotaging what we are trying to do. I know you mentioned in the article different ways. So please elaborate a bit on that for me, Sammy. I think I have three ways here, you said, manifesting three ways. So you can talk about it and then maybe expand to something else. Um, so one of the ways that we could see that the fear or the sabotage of success has come in is by seeing that you were just simply thrown off course. So for a woman that has always had the identity of, I don't deserve to be healthy, I don't deserve to be fit because Perhaps she was made fun of a lot, and that's her reality growing up. She was bullied a lot, perhaps for her weight. When she starts going to the gym and starts seeing results, there will be this switch that if we're careful, we can almost notice, almost like a switch that kicks on that says, oh, don't go to the gym today. You've been so good. It almost feels like a very seductive voice. <laughs> True. And uh, that's the sabotage kicking in. That's saying, okay, you already have stepped outside of your identity for too long. Because oftentimes we just do the physical work in changing our circumstance. We never look at our beliefs. Very few people do, right? So she'll say, okay, that's true. I have been very good. And then over time, different things will happen that will kind of make her unaware that she's shifting back to her older patterns. She'll start perhaps... Uh, even more subconscious sneaky things like she might start dating a guy that keeps her so obsessed with him waiting for his phone calls wondering if he's cheating on me all of that just to restore her identity as someone that feels out of control and needs to use food as a source of comfort so she'll either get in a toxic relationship or she'll say oh you know what like I'm doing so good at work let me work harder because I know I can get that promotion that's coming up so she'll start becoming a workaholic something like that but we'll notice whatever the first thing that the brain is protecting her from which is getting to her ideal weight what is consciously her ideal weight the brain will create all of these defense mechanisms to try to distract her from that so she goes back to either the same weight that she was or close to that weight again and then the ego is happy and that's when she starts noticing again wow 
now my new clothes that I bought after I lost weight are not fitting me anymore. I'm back to my old weight. So then she feels bad about herself. And that's very comforting to the ego because it's like, okay, we're back to what we know. Great. That's key, isn't it? To be able to recognize that. Mm-hmm. What is familiar to us, even when it, it's painful, but then it has this false sense of comfort just because it's something that's known. And, and we are very uncomfortable with, uh, or the ego, as you call it, it's uncomfortable with the unknown. So he always wants to know. And with that in mind, how do you help your clients getting out of this pattern? What's the process? Is that something that takes weeks, months, years, or it can happen even in one session? So it can happen in one session if the belief that they formed wasn't due to something very, very traumatic or didn't have multiple layers. So it might be just someone that overate a little and then, you know, growing up and their identity might be someone that eats past their level of comfort. And then we can just kind of recognize that. Okay, what feeling do you feel in your body when you've eaten past the level of comfort? Can you remember the last time? Okay, stay in that moment while we debunk some belief systems. What will you feel when you're full? Okay, is it uncomfortable? Is there a certain addictive quality to this discomfort? Is your mind running a little bit slower and you're able to not think about things that you normally, you know, would be very upset by? So is this helping you kind of cope with some other stress? Okay, so we just kind of keep getting answers from the brain until something feels right. And the client is like, oh my God, Sammy, that is it. Exactly. And we may have to go through you know, sometimes 30, 40 of those. But if we're doing enough sensing work, we'll get the answer. Now, the tricky part becomes when it's not just one or two sessions is if there were multiple reasons somebody's overeating. For example, there might be clients who had a, and this is very sad what I'm about to say, but if somebody had, for instance, a borderline mother or a mother that couldn't share attention with anyone else, they will find that the only way the mom was happy is when they were, you know, overweight, because then, you know, the mom wasn't mean to them. Like when they were overeating, the mom was very loving towards them. When they felt out of control, you know, the mom rewarded them by saying, oh, my baby, or that's the only way they had connection or something like that, or they bonded over food, or they never saw their father except at mealtimes. Then it's going to take me a little bit longer because I have to unlink in their mind the feeling of comfort and the feeling of spending time with their dad and, you know, uh, food. So in imagery and inner child work, I will bring in their father in all sorts of healthy environments. I will have them picture them going running with their dad and picking out like really healthy meals and, and just like, you know, eating vegan food together. And also like perhaps create an imagery of their dad pushing away like a plate of food that's unhealthy and saying, hey, what do you say? You and I make our own meal tonight. And eventually, over several exposures to this kind of work, the client's mind will become very primed to feel like, no, I don't relate connection anymore to unhealthy food. But I do feel connected with my dad in these images with healthy food. And their mind will naturally gravitate to that. So that's what we want to create more through hypnosis is whatever caused the original belief. We want to replace that with these new imageries, these new belief systems. And eventually the mind gets very um, confused about between what really happened and what didn't. Intellectually, we'll always know. But the subconscious is like, okay, this new identity that we're creating in our minds feels pretty comfortable. 
feels pretty familiar. Okay, I'm willing to give it a try. That's where we know we have success. So it's very multi-layered. I have two questions for you. Let me see if I remember them. Um, yeah, one is about safety, but that's not the one that I wanted to ask you. Yeah, at the level of the brain, at the physical level, does it change? Is that just at the level of the um, abstract thinking, belief systems, or the brain itself also changes? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very good question because what you're now getting into is a very fascinating area of, of neuroplasticity. But I want to preface that by saying that it's the brain and the body, both, that change simultaneously. So, for example, if somebody brings me a plate of food that's not healthy and my you know, mouth starts to water and I feel this urge and this like, like almost tightening of the chest that's like, relieve me of these cravings, just dig in and make yourself full. There's a part of the brain that's engaged, but there's also a body that's creating the physical responses, biological responses, reacting to that unhealthy food because it anticipates pleasure out of that food because it's always gotten it. So the brain's like, okay, we know we guarantee ourselves pleasure from this type of food. But over time, creating different belief system, the brain starts to notice. And this happens very quickly, Valerie, by the way. I always say neuroplasticity, you know, give it like six weeks to like three months. That's really how fast neuroplasticity works. It's incredible. Is the brain starts to notice like, wait, I don't seem to be using this part of my brain a lot. Like Sammy doesn't seem to be using it a lot. She's instead using this part of her brain, which is more uh, focused on her breathing, which is more focused on, you know, just sitting with the present moment and and creating acceptance. Okay, why don't I deposit a little bit more gray matter in here and take away some from this other part of the brain that was first dedicated to compulsive eating? And it will actually send the feedback loop to the body, to the muscles that would actually contract to to make my hand go towards the food and eat it really, really fast and create a lot of momentum and my jaw would chew faster. My brain would be like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. So how about we just make our jaw movements a little slower and we eat more mindfully. So eventually it will actually cause physical changes in the, not just the structure of the brain, but also of the body and at a cellular level too, because my my cells will no longer have more receptors for sugar and won't have as many receptors for like toxic processed foods and high fructose corn syrup. It will start to be like, well, I actually need to absorb more vitamin C now, more vitamin D now. Why don't I create more receptors for that? Eventually, they'll start craving more of those foods. So we cause this whole biological chain of reactions in, in our mind and our bodies when we create a powerful change. And like I said, it's one thing to do that with willpower. But with something like hypnotherapy, because it's very gentle and it doesn't trigger the ego because the ego doesn't really know what our directive is when we're doing hypnotherapy. We're just creating beautiful images and we're just sitting with it. And so the ego is not as threatened by it. So it kind of reprograms it without tipping off the defense mechanisms. That's mm-hmm. what's really great about hypnotherapy. Right. Yeah. It bypasses the ego. Right. And fascinating it is this connection between the the mind-brain connection. So changing Mm -hmm. the mind will change the brain. And also how, I mean, something that's so, that we should know, all of us, that everything's connected. Once we change anything, 
within the body at any level, everything else is, is triggered. It's because th there's nothing that's separated in the first place. So that mm -hmm. really resonates true to me. My last question about what you do, Sammy, is the risks. I thought this way before, not anymore, but I used to, that there was a risk. I was afraid of doing hypnotherapy because, you know, I have read somewhere that I could get stuck within uh, the mind's realm somewhere and never come back. <laughs> I know mm -hmm. it's, it's laughable, but yeah, talk to me about those risks, if they exist, and some of the myths that are out there about hypnotherapy. Mm -hmm. One of the good things about hypnotherapy is that you're never completely unconscious or you're never 100% in somebody's control, no more than you are when you watch a very powerful ad or you see yeah. very strong marketing like when you're driving and you see a billboard and you're like oh my god that you know looks so good I want to go get those shoes right? right or something like that yes you're being influenced but nobody is really taking charge of the brain now the feeling of stuckness that you were afraid of uh, before that might come from the idea that sometimes hypnotherapists maybe are not very accurately gauging how far perhaps in your childhood you're willing to go. And they might talk about a memory that bothers you or a memory about, for instance, a dad abandoning us or something like that might come up. And then the hypnotherapist doesn't really resolve it or doesn't really fully resolve it. So one of the ways that you can overcome that is if that happens, you just increase your sessions for a little bit. Maybe you just do an extra session that week or you just go in the very next day and you're like, hey, can you help me through this? I've been thinking about this a little too much. I feel a little stuck. Or you could try a different hypnotherapist because one of the things that I make sure and do is I create almost like little checkpoints. So if I'm working with you, Valerie, what I would like to really ensure is that I don't take you deeper without resolving what I've already brought up. So I'm not going to expose some of your most vulnerable defense mechanisms all at once. I'm going to take it very little at a time. If I notice that you're not ready to go deeper, if we're working on something and you're like, oh, this feels overwhelming. And that's why we have something called the, the SUD scale that really all uh, clinicians use, uh, hypnotherapists use it, but also therapists and psychiatrists use it too, is you rate on a one to 10 what scale or what intensity a feeling is. And if you tell me it's more than a six or a seven, we're going to stay away from that and we're going to work with something that's around a six and seven intensity um, on, on a level of pain. If we go past what your ability to cope in this moment is, then we might create some kind of, you know, fear around hypnotherapy or fear around the process. So that's why we definitely want to make sure that the hypnotherapist we're working with really resonates. I feel like clients should interview us in the first session. If they don't want to do anything, they just want to kind of get to know us and see how we resonate with them. That's totally fine. It's just a process, just like finding the right dentist or the right mechanic for your car. We don't want to go with the first one, possibly, you know, that, that we're working with. We want to continue exploring and there's good ones. There's really competent, proficient ones. And then there's also ones that may not have as much experience or may not have you know, the right kind of sensitivity to that particular client or their area of specialization might be different. So we want to be very careful who we're working with. I think that's just prudent. But some of those fears that you mentioned are not completely off base. There could be something that we might start and not finish it. So we want to just really make sure that you like your hypnotherapist, that 
he or she is doing what you need in the way that you need it and that you feel safe with them. Mm. That's very important. Yeah. Uh, thank you for saying that and explain that, the safety protocols, that that's part of the work you do. And um, with that in mind, I guess my last question about that is, how do we feel, what are we are supposed to feel after a um, hypnotherapy session? Do you have a measurement for that somehow? How do we measure the success of a session? So you would be able to see um, right in that session, what I do is when I work with a particular thing or a particular milestone, my milestone just be for somebody to salivate less, for example, when they're in, in the presence of a certain food. So I'll have them bring up I don't know, ice cream, for example, right? In the beginning of the session and see how they're responding, how badly they want it. Or, you know, if it's a smoking client, you know, how badly they want that cigarette. And towards the end of the session, I'll ask them to bring it up. Or, you know, sometimes they bring the food or they bring the cigarettes with them. And we take them out and ask them, you know, what is your your reaction to this now? How strongly do you want it? And a lot of times they're like, oh, I kind of don't want it. I kind of want to push it away. Or it might be that, okay, I was feeling it at a six or a seven before. Now I feel the craving at a three or a two. It's definitely incremental. We build on the work that we do in the following sessions. But there's ways that we definitely bring up the trigger and we see where it's at now. So within the session, the client always knows because I always end the session bringing up the very trigger that we started with. So they're like, wow, I see how I'm feeling different now. Or now when I bring up that memory of that abuse, I feel more separated from it. Or the guy has now turned into a cartoon voice. The guy that was abusing me now looks like a cartoon. Or the picture is more dim. It's black and white. So when we process and digest traumatic memories, we can actually change the way they're stored in our brain to where the audio might be muted. So we will know within that session how much, uh, you know, success we've had. Yeah, not just the client, but uh, you too. The hypnotherapist will know as well. Thank you so much, uh, Sammy, for doing what you do. It's very generous. It's really beautiful. I keep saying that because it is truly, truly beautiful. Thank you, Valerie. I really appreciate your time and your insightful questions today. And I hope to talk to you very soon. Absolutely. I still have a few more questions for you. Do you believe in life after death? And if you do, what kind of life? Mm -hmm. So yes, I definitely do believe that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only really just change form and be recycled in a sense. So I believe that the way we're attached to our identity, perhaps we're not reincarnated or uh, brought back the same way, but it's the same energy. It's the same consciousness. So just like how we are all connected with what's here now, we're also connected above and beyond time. Time doesn't really exist in the traditional sense. That's really been even proven mathematically and scientifically. So it's the same energy. It's the same what you might call soul. But we may not have the exact memory of who we were in, in, in a last lifetime. But I don't believe that we cease to exist just because we physically can no longer be connected with, the, with, with our consciousness the same way. And my last question is, what are three things about life you wish everyone to know or to have or to experience before they lose the body? Hmm. Oh, wow. Such a great question. So the three things I would say is being able to feel a moment of non-judgment. And I mean complete non-judgment. Um, the ego is so strong that even in a single moment, 
we pass two or three judgments without really knowing um, that we're passing them. So I really wish for someone to have that separation from their their ego and their judgment and to experience a moment fully in its in its glory. Second thing I feel that people should experience is a true form of unconditional love, and that includes self-love. And the third thing that I want people to experience is to just know that they are a result of socialization and the core of who they are is very different. So shedding what society has told us is good or bad about us and really feel ourselves with all of our parts, even the parts that were repressed, is what my biggest wish for anyone to experience is. And before we go, where can we find more information about you, your services, products, and future projects? Mm-hmm. Well, um, anyone that wants to know more about my work can go to my website. It's uh, www.dontwaittolive.com. Yeah, and your website. I love the the title to the name. Yeah, it's very inspiring. <laughs> no way to live. Thank I love you. That too. <laughs> Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Sammy. Hey, bye, Valerie. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Saman Nasir and her work, please visit don'twaittolive.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.